Um, so tonight we're going to broach the subject of faith and what it really is. Um, I think in our modern world we see a very different uh, explanation of faith from what it really is. Um, I see more and more in our modern world theological rot uh, working its way through the church and transforming our understanding of things like faith into a dull shadow of what it should be. So let's dive in and see what the Bible says about faith. It may be just as importantly what it doesn't say. Uh, but first, a story. Ooh, how do I... There we go. Um, this is a story about a girl named Emma. <clears throat> Emma was raised in a Christian home, uh, and she was too young to remember, but her parents told her stories of how she was baptized as an infant. She barely remembered asking Jesus to come into her heart when she was maybe around the age of four or five. Uh, she grew up going to church on Sundays, not all, but for sure always on Christmas and Easter. Uh, she'd attend Sunday school sometimes, but there were a lot of Sundays when her family was too busy. Uh, as she got older, she did start attending the church youth group, but admittedly this was more so to hang out with her friends than to learn anything about the Bible. Uh, eventually, eventually graduation day came and Emma went out into the world to make a life for herself. Uh, Emma was from a small town, so most everyone around her held a lot in common with her. So the idea of anything that would question her faith had never really come up before. But when she decided to go to college out of state in a city much larger than the one she grew up in, suddenly her way of life was no longer the norm, and in fact she was looked down upon. Uh, being the Christian girl made her different. She didn't much care for that. It wasn't long before classmates and professors had gotten wind of her religious background and started asking questions. Some of the people she talked to were rude, but a lot of them were just curious. She was happy to answer questions about what she believed, but about what she believed, but when the questions about why she believed it came up, suddenly she felt a lot less prepared. She wasn't too worried, though, because she had faith. Or so, so she thought. After a while, those questions started to really nag at her and became harder and harder to ignore. Um, she started to question her own faith and look for answers on campus, but the answers she wanted weren't the ones she found. Before long, Emma had been swayed by her new friends and teachers with what she felt was sound logic, that the Bible really wasn't something for her anymore. After all, it was just stories written by men full of contradictions, it was really more of a book of ideas more than actual truth and history. That's what her peers and professors said. She felt like a burden had been lifted from her. She was free to do whatever she wanted now and explore things in life that she never thought to before. Emma had a very different life now, free from all the religious stuff. Uh, she eventually told her parents she wasn't a Christian anymore, and she graduated and moved away. Emma's parents were upset and confused. Uh, Emma knew they still loved her, but it was always awkward visiting them from then on. Uh, Emma started experimenting with drugs and multiple sexual partners, and nothing, but nothing too crazy. She was, after all, basically a good person. She tried and tried to scratch that itch to fill the now empty void in her life, but after multiple divorces, different jobs, homes in different states, the only thing Emma's life had been full of was sadness and now bitterness. 
In the end, despite claiming to have never believed in him her whole life, her whole adult life, Emma blamed God for all of her troubles. If God was real, he certainly wasn't good. After all, how could a loving God let people suffer? Uh, as tragic as Emma's story sounds, it is more common than you think. Countless youths are turning away from the Christian church on a daily basis. Uh, Lifeway research reports that 60 per 66%, 66% of young adults between the ages of 18 and 22 uh, who attended a Protestant church on a regular basis as a teenager uh, dropped out for at least a year between the ages between those ages of 18 and 22. Uh, Scott McDonald, the executive director of Lifeway Research, writes, the reality that Protestant churches continue to see is the new generation walking away as young adults. Regardless of any external factors, the Protestant church is slowly shrinking from within. As those teenagers reach their late teen, year, teen years, even those with a history of regular church attendance, uh, they are pulled away as they get an increased sense of independence, driver's license, and job. Uh, for those of you not in the know, this trend is known somewhat recently uh, as deconstruction, uh, which is a essentially tearing down or dismantling of an individual's Christian faith and turning it into something else, um, leading to an increasingly large, large group who now call themselves exvangelicals, which is a relatively new term in today's world. Uh, again, this is a growing trend, and the reach of social, the social influence that these exvangelicals have in society is increased by the ease of online communication uh, through platforms like Twitter and YouTube. In places like education, where the church should be shining, it couldn't be any further away. Now, there is something to be said for what uh, author Elisa Childers calls disentanglement, which could be considered a good deconstruction. There's not nearly as many, but uh, preferably people uh, going through this process as well. Um, this good deconstruction, de Deconstruction or disentanglement results in a removal of bad theology from one's understanding of Christianity and is Christianity and is being replaced with accurate biblical theology in its place. But that is not the topic we're going to delve into too much tonight. Um, this story about Emma leads to some questions. Um, if you look at her the, the question is, ultimately, did she have faith? Um, Emma had all the telltale signs that the vast majority of children from the church today have. She was raised in a Christian home. You can put quotations around that if you want. She was baptized as an infant, for what good that may have done her. She said the sinner's prayer when she was four or five, like I know many of us in this room, including myself, did. Uh, she had fellowship with other believers. She went to church sometimes, she went to Sunday school sometimes, she went to youth group, again, mostly to hang out to her, with her friends. When it comes to her prayer life and reading the Bible is probably where, admittedly, she struggled the most. Obviously, in this story, uh, Emma did not stay within the faith and ultimately fell away. Uh, if this, doesn't, this scenario doesn't scare you, it should. 
How likely is this to be someone else's story instead of this made-up person named Emma? What if her name was Eliana or Leah? Sorry. I got a whole list of names that I can't get through. <laughs> Adelaide, Tyla, Jack, Roland, Andrew, Sela. <clears throat> Statistically, ooh, we got to get through this. <laughs> Two-thirds of children in this room, statistically speaking, I know this room is a little bit different than your average statistics, hopefully, uh, ha will not have adequate faith in God by the time they're in their 20s to remain a Christian. If this gives you the shivers, you should. It does me, clearly. Um, clearly, this isn't anything we want for our children, <clears throat> nor ourselves. So how do we avoid what happened to Emma in our own lives? That is the question I hope to begin answering tonight, if I can compose myself. Does that say two minutes? Okay, that's clock's frozen. That's good. All right. So in regards to faith, the chapter in the Bible that we're going to find the most information about that, uh, specifically in regards to its definition, is Hebrews 11. Um, to find faith, we must do as all good expositors do and clarify the meaning of the word and, of course, use the scriptures to do so. As much as the Bible talks about faith, now this is specifically, there's words like faithful, faithless, which expands this number greatly. Uh, it's mentioned, depending on your translation, between 175 to 250 times in the Bible. Uh, there's one place in particular that goes to any kind of length to define it, and only one, and that is uh, the 11th chapter of Hebrews. While this chapter is dedicated to the concept of faith and explores its aspects thoroughly, it is right away in verse 1 where we are given not one, but two definitions of faith. Again, depending on the translation, we see multiple seemingly very different words used to define faith. Uh, we see, that should have been in my next slide, uh, substance, confidence, assurance, evidence, conviction, and firm foundation. These words all seem substantially different from each other, so we must dig deeper. Yeah, that was totally supposed to be my next slide. Um, you see here different versions of Hebrews 11 translated. Uh, you see in King James, New King James, you see faith is the substance of things that we hope for. Substance, things, hope for. That's going to be kind of a theme we attack here in a minute. Uh, then in the second part, we have evidence. Again, things, and then not seen. If we move down to the NIV, now we're looking at faith is confidence. What things, hope for, still what we hope for. And now instead of evidence, we have assurance about what or things that we not seen, do not see. ESV now switches the definition around from the second half to the first, showing us assurance instead of confidence and substance at the beginning, and then changes the second definition to conviction, still referring to things hoped for and then things not seen. Uh, ASV, American Standard, uses the same assurance and conviction. And then strangely enough, a version of the Bible I'm not a big fan of, I think in this particular instance, 
is the one I appreciate the most. It's worded a lot differently, but it says the fundamental fact of existence is that we trust in God, this faith. It is the firm foundation under everything that makes life worth living. It is our handle on what we cannot see. So why is there so many variations on the translation, and why are we using this vague term, things, not once, but only twice? Um, if this is to be the sole place in the Bible where faith is defined, we are going to need more than this to really understand it. So as we should, we go to the original Greek. I want to put a disclaimer in here. I'm very good at making it sound like I know how to pronounce things. That doesn't mean I'm pronouncing them correctly. I know. It, there's so many there's so many different words here. Reality is you're talking with the red highlighted text. Reality is the first one and then proof is the second one. That's interesting. Well, we'll get into it. Um, okay. Fun fact, I actually like the message better. Okay, so looking at that word, now faith is the assurance. This is the Greek word hypostasis. The Greek word used here, as we saw before, had, was translated into the versions mentioned, is assurance, confidence, and substance. Uh, hypostasis means specifically it's split into hupo and mistemi combined into each other, uh, under and to stand. Um, according to Strawn's concordance, this should translate as to place or to set under, that which underlies reality, essence, substance, and the basis of something, or confidence. Now you can see by looking at those definitions, a lot of them very wild each other, what do reality and confidence have to do with each other? Uh, but that just goes to show that Greek is, guess what, everybody, a different language than what we speak. And so we have to kind of dig into what it means to look into that. If we look at the King James Version New Testament Greek lexicon, they describe it as a setting or a placing under, a substructure, a foundation that is firm. So a structure, not a building. <laughs> That's an inside joke. Uh, existence substantial, real being, steadfastness, courage, or resolution. Um, I'll be the first to tell you Greek is something I'm not even remotely specialized in, so take my extremely basic approach to this moving forward for what it's worth. You be, you'll likely be a better judge of how these words are applied than I am. Uh, okay, so if we look into hypostasis some more, uh, we can find an analysis of the word that brings in more clarification. The more we dig, the more it appears to be referring to something sturdy, solid, strong in foundation underneath. Um, even a binding legal contract is mentioned. This makes more sense of the definition we see in the modern translation, translations such as substance and assurance. Uh, we see here in the slide an A.T. Robertson from Word Pictures in the New Testament. Uh, describes hypostasis as a very common word used from the point of the historical figure Aristotle onward and comes from the word hufistami, which stands under anything, building, contract, promise. That same supporting concept. Uh, and then M.R. Vincent from Word Studies in the New Testament says, it is hypostasis made up of stasis to stand, 
and hupo is under, thus that which stands under, or a foundation. That is, uh, thus it speaks to the uh, speaks of the ground on which one builds hope. Um, and then further looking into the hypostasis word from David Gooding in the New Testament word studies, the choice of meaning in chapter 11, verse 1, is not easy. Witness the differences in the versions, but it lies between giving hypostasis a passive meaning, such as faith is the inwrought confidence and assurance that one day we, will, we shall possess the things we hope for, versus an active meaning, faith gives substance to our hopes, turning them into solid realities. If here the active meaning seems preferable, the expositor rather than the grammarian must decide. Now, if this seems a little wordy and a little heady, you're not wrong because I had to stare at this for hours to even begin to comprehend exactly what I was looking at. Um, and this insight of mine may be worthless, but I don't really have an issue with either of those, and I feel you can kind of approach it from both directions and still have it fit. Having confidence and assurance that one day we will possess the things we hope for. Uh, other translations show like promises of God there versus the more active meaning of it gives substance or validity to our hopes, turning them into reality. Feels equally like a good definition of faith to me, but again, it's not up for me to decide. Um, the second word we're looking at in the verse uh, this is now the conviction of things not seen. It, targeting the word conviction, we are looking at the word elenkos. Uh, the Greek word used here, elenkos, is described as, or the translation we've looked at, is evidence, assurance, and conviction. Uh, and is only ever used this one time here in all the New Testament. It brings to light, it, it means to bring to light or to demonstrate proof proving that which brings conviction. This, this for me is already a more difficult word to wrap my head around. Uh, it is perhaps possible to give it a passive meaning. Faith is the inner conviction about things not seen, but the active meaning is grammatically easier, according, according to David Gooding again here from New Testament Word Studies. Faith is that which supplies the conviction and makes us certain of things not seen. Uh, Tara, tell Brian to text Chris Schimmel. What? I can see Brian's text. It's weird. Um, from a website called Pure Spiritual Milk. Uh, don't judge me. The word most commonly, most commonly used for seeing. For, oh, the word most commonly commonly used for seeing, for actually seeing something, is in the, in the New Testament is hooray. <laughs> And it is generally used to refer to seeing something with your eyes, with your physical eyes. However, blepo, not that guy in the blue and orange with the swirly hat and dances with the kids. Blepo can be used for can be used for seeing with the eyes, but is generally used to describe intellectual or spiritual perception, to see uh, to see as perception or insight, or to see into or to understand. It is our contention here that the word blepo is specifically chosen by the writer in order to refer to both types of seeing and is for this 
specific purpose. Philosophers and other who deny and oppose religion claim to base their lives on reason and fact, while people on faith base their lives on myth and superstition. This, however, is not according to this passage, and philosophers themselves have discovered this, again, according to pure spiritual milk. Uh, if you're wondering where the blepo word comes from, uh, it's following immediately after elenkos. Um, elenkos u blepomen is elenkos, the uh, assurance of u blepomen, not seen things. So this is referring to the type of seeing of those things. Blepomenon. Blepomenon. Did you? Blepomenon. Mr. Menon. Um, okay. So what are these things? It talks about things twice. Things not seen. Things that we hope for. Um, things of one sort or another are mentioned two separate times in the verse referring to similar but different concepts. The first things are the things hoped for and is translated from the Greek, here we go, elpizomenon, which you see that menon again, that is the things. The root elpizo means to expect, to hope for, or to trust. And the things we are hoping for are the promises God has made that have yet been fulfilled. The second things are the things that are not seen and is translated from the Greek word pragmaton meaning a thing done, a deed, or an action, and again that ublepamon, meaning not being seen, perceived, or discerned, which in context is referring to spiritual things, again from the Pure Spiritual Milk website. Um, so here's Jordan's really shenanigans way of trying to kind of translate in a way that makes sense to me. I've done it in three times, uh, kind of way too heady, a little heady, and not heady at all. Uh, I would say this is now our faith is our solid foundation in the expected fulfillment of God's promise. The verifiable facts pertaining to the reality of what has God has done behind the scenes in both the physical and spiritual world. world. That's the, that's the BCJV, the Barely Coherent Jordan Version. Um, that's a little much. It's a little much for me, so to dumb it down a little, uh, faith is being sure of God's promises because of the factual evidence confirming what God has already done that we don't tangibly see. And to dumb it down a little, faith is being sure of God's future plans by knowing what God has done in the past. So we have then a somewhat better definition of faith based on analyzing those terms. Um, I will be the last person to say those who actually translated the Bible to the ones we read at the beginning were, of course, better at this than me. But to help me get a hand on it, seeing the Greek for myself, reading the same language that they did to come to their conclusions, um, kind of opens my eyes, at least, and hopefully yours a little bit more, to a definition of faith. So faith is a surety of what God has planned for us based on what God has already done, which makes all the sense in the world to me. Um, if we define, we move on to defining faith now. Um, there's a few other terms used throughout the Bible. 
uh, more analogies as opposed to direct definitions. Um, in Matthew 7, 24 through 27, um, Jesus is deep into perhaps the most famous of his teachings, the Sermon on the Mount. At the very end of this sermon, he ends with a story about two builders, one who builds on a solid rock or, let's say, a solid foundation, something we've heard here recently, and another who builds upon the sand. In this story, Jesus said that the man who built his home with a solid foundation, meaning listening and adhering to the word of God, stood firm against the floods and the winds that came against him, or we understand the trials and difficulties of life. The other man had a weak foundation, and when the going got tough, he was left with nothing. Um, to quote the verse directly, uh, Matthew 7, 24 through 27 in the ESV, Everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who has built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the wind blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was its fall. Yeah. So, for those of you who like to visualize these things, here's a fantastic video of a house not built where it should have been. Uh, I believe this was just a couple of years ago with the massive floods in Yellowstone. Uh, I remember seeing that. Was it just last year? I'm getting old. Uh, and if you want to see a better version of a house that was built to stand, hit that button. Uh, this footage is definitely from the 90s. You can tell because of the way it is. Um, but obviously these structures were meant to withstand the waves uh, in a really big way. And you can imagine those buildings haven't been there for weeks or months. They've been there for decades or longer. No, I stop it. <laughs> Um, continuing to define faith, now that we've kind of grasped, um, we, we've read the text in the context of faith with the idea of assurance in mind, it kind of lets us see the rest of the verses in the Bible in a new light. Um, I've taken the liberty, and hopefully I won't be uh, lit on fire for this, of switching the word faith in a few key Bible verses to assurance, which I feel kind of helps put an interesting perspective on this. In Romans 1.17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from assurance, for assurance, as it is written, the right, righteous shall live by assurance, or their assurance in the promises that God is yet to fulfill and the ones he already has. Ephesians 2.8 says, for by grace you have been saved through your assurance. Mark eleven twenty two and Jesus answered them, Have assurance in God. Second Corinthians five seven, for we walk by assurance and not by sight. First Corinthians two five, so that your assurance might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In Hebrews eleven six, where we've just been hovering a little bit, without assurance it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that he rewards those who seek him. God, it is clearly stated here that 
if you can't be sure of what God has told you, you can't have a connection with him. Which honestly kind of turns the cultural normative definition of faith, faith I would say, on its head. Um, getting into the title of this topic, we define faith as a shield. Uh, in Ephesians 6, 10 through 16 is, of course, the section of the Bible that discusses the armor of God. Um, we are told what faith and the rest of the armor is meant to defend against. But I think it's interesting that at the end of this section, um, it is noted that in all circumstances, we are to take up the shield of faith. I'll read the text. Starting in verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For you do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the cosmic powers. Over the present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I don't know how much a lot of you have been paying attention to what's going on in the world right now, but the presence of cosmic powers and spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places are alive and well. Verse 13, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Uh, skipping over the part about the rest of the armor as it's not 100% pertinent to what we're talking about. And 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So I've kind of highlighted here in the red those things that that shield has helped to defend against. Schemes of the devil, authorities, cosmic powers, present darkness, spiritual forces of evil, and flaming darts of the evil one. Uh, it's interesting that a shield is used here specifically. Uh, if you look at what the readers of this, these verses would be looking at, what they uh, were in the Second Temple period, which was uh, almost entirely ruled by Rome during this time, uh, whose prominent type of shield was called a scutum, or a scutum. This type of shield was as large as a door and would cover the warrior entirely, such a shield was not just defensive, but could also be used to push opponents. When fighting as a group, a phalanx of soldiers could position their shields as to form an enclosure around themselves called a testudo, which means tortoise. This was especially helpful to protect against arrows launched from the walls of the cities that we were, they were attacking. These shields would often be made of wood and covered in hide, and when wet, could actually extinguish those flaming arrows. Um, again, I love seeing things demonstrated. So there is a picture of the, what the heck did I call it? Scootum. Scootum shield. And then how that would be used in combat. Not necessarily to protect one man, it was good for that, but in a uh, army it was near impenetrable and not only used to defend against the enemy, but was used to advance against them. Keep that in mind moving forward. Now that we have defined faith in several different ways, I think it's important to look at who, again, in Hebrews 11, the Bible points to as having had adequate faith. Uh, we'll just kind of go through the list here. By faith, Abel 
brought God a better offering than Cain. By faith, he was commended as righteousness. When God spoke well of his offerings, and by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. As I kind of read faith here, just keep in mind that definition that we've worked on thus far and see if you can see it in new eyes. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And by faith, Noah, when warned about things not seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By faith, he was he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in the keeping with the faith. These were all antediluvian faithful, which I like the word antediluvian. It means before the flood. Uh, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place, would later receive his, as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in the foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Is that use of the word foundations? And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, I would like to note, the author of Hebrews was clearly had something against Sarah because he says, even Sarah, which I love, who is past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who made the promise. And so from this one man, and as good as deed, came descendants innumerous as the stars in the sky and countless as the sand on the seashore. Notice that verse there in the middle, as good as deed. And, and he as good as deed, which kind of goes back to that. Dead? Oh, I'm sorry. My letters are small. It's dead. It's my alouette. It's not deed. It's dead. He's good as dead. Anywho, just the one. Um, I'm allowing one. I need to escape here real quick. Okay. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. And by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of, his son, each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. And in regards to Moses and his parents, by faith, when he was born, Moses was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. I'm sure there's a better translation of that, but to not sacrifice your child because he's good-looking doesn't make all the sense in the world to me. But hey, glad they saved him. Uh, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater, greater wealth than the treasure of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward, that promise of things unseen. By faith, he was, uh, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured, and seeing him who is invisible, by faith he kept 
the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. A few more of these hall of heroes here by faith. The people of Israel crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. And by faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now, I have to kind of pause on Rahab. If faith is assurance of the promises God has made and our knowledge and understanding of the promises he has already fulfilled, I really don't know what Rahab had to go off of, which makes I feel like her placement in this chapter all that more compelling because she was able to believe based on so much less that she had seen than any of these other um, faithful. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. If you read that, so the story of Rahab and the spies, she specifically mentions, you know, we have heard that God has promised you this land. Sure. So that's, that would be the faith in those promises, not necessarily. And, and not to say she hadn't. Not to say she had none, but definitely her, the information right. she had was severely limited comparatively right. to all of these men who, Abraham walked with God, he dined with God, Jacob wrestled with him. Like, absolutely, absolutely, 100%. I, I love Rahab's inclusion here because of that and for the fact that she's the only woman that the writer of Hebrews doesn't say, and could you believe Rahab? <laughs> I love it. Yeah, even Sarah. Because as we move into verse 33, we see what those who move in faith can do. Um, verse 33 and 34 gets my blood pumping. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, Stopped the mouths of lions. Woo! <laughs> Quenched the power of fire. Escaped the edge of the sword. Were made strong and out of weakness became mighty in war. Put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead from resurrection. Ladies and gentlemen, that's metal. I can tell some of you know what that means. And I can tell some of you don't know what that means. When somebody says that is metal, that means that is hardcore, that is epic, that is fantastic, that is an incredible thing, that rocks. <laughs> Had to explain this to my wife, so I figured I'd have to explain it to the rest of you. She doesn't speak German. As Minton, uh, we're working on it. We're 14 years in, we're getting there. 14 years. Yeah. Um, as awesome as all of that is, it's flip side. Um, you'll enjoy my subtext in this slide. Some of these men, people, were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking, flogging, chains, imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two, that's lovely, killed with a sword, went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts, mountains, dens and caves, ladies and gentlemen, 
That is also metal. <laughs> so, in the story of Emma that we heard at the beginning, I think we can all relate to a little bit better now to what she thought was faith as a term that I think is more commonly understood as blind faith. Um, the question we have to ask ourselves there is, Emma ha did Emma have true faith? Well, clearly not, because she did not stay steadfast in the promises of God. Did she have an adequate intellectual foundation about the truth of the Bible based on facts about spiritual reality? The definition of faith from Hebrews 11.1. 1. Absolutely not. And if Emma didn't have faith, what did she have? It's what I would call blind faith. Blind faith isn't something really discussed so much scripturally, at least not that I could find in my limited ability. Um, so the dictionary definition of this is belief without understanding, perception, or discrimination. An example of blind faith might be trust the science. <laughs> or how about just believe? As it pertains to Christianity, I would define blind faith as the belief in only the most basic elements of the gospel, dismissing the study of cases against the validity of the Bible out of fear and or laziness and neglecting to delve into continuously more advanced study of the word. To instead of solidifying your faith daily, only serve and to hasten its decay into a fragile and hollow shell of what it is supposed to be by crippling your ability to defend your beliefs with nothing more than empty phrases like, I just love Jesus. Let's be honest about the world we live in, though. If you don't have a solid foundation, a solid understanding of the promises that God has made and a solid understanding of what he's done already by the time you get to college, you're asking for trouble. Yeah, and you learn that as a high school teacher. Well, they, sh they should. They should. Um... Let's see, in Matthew 13, 3 through 9, I feel is the best description of what could be related to his blind faith. Um, this, of course, is the parable of the sower. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and he sowed some seeds that fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and they immediately sprang up, but they had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, or let's say hardship came, they were scorched. Since they, since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds, other young ladies, let's say, fell among thorns, or professors who would do nothing, enjoy nothing more than to deconstruct young Christian children. And the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty, he who has ears, let him hear. Unfortunately, blind faith is all too common in the church today. Uh, and I feel Andrew kind of touched on that very well earlier. Certain denominations, too many to name, honestly, adhere to us almost completely. Interestingly enough, Frederick Nietzsche, a devout atheist in his book, Thoughts on the Prejudice of Morality, I feel I had one of the more relevant quotes in this regard, Christianity has done its utmost to close the circle and declared even doubt to be sin. One is supposed to be cast into belief 
without reason, by a miracle, and from then on to swim in it, as in the brightest, as in the brightest and least ambiguous of elements. What is wanted is our blindness and intoxication in an eternal song over the waves in which reason has drowned. I can think of no more of a unfortunately true statement about the way I'm going to say it, the majority of Christians live their lives today. Um, this was a neat excerpt of Josh McDowell's uh, from one of the sites I was researching. Um, oh, I should have put in my notes. It looked like he had a book, um, something about evidence that demands, yes, yes. Evidence that demands a verdict. Who's the I kiss Dave and goodbye? That's Josh Harris. That's a different guy. That's a different guy. Yeah. So he has a neat little scene here. Imagine a courtroom. At the head of the courtroom, behind the desk on an elevated platform, sits the judge. Positioned nearby is the court reporter, the clerk, and the bailiff. To the right of the jury, in the middle of the room, off to one side, is the lawyer who will be prosecuting the case. To the other side is the defendant and his attorney. It is the job of the prosecutor to make his case in such a way that it leaves no reasonable doubt the defendant is guilty. To do so, he will call witnesses to testify and present relevant evidence. But now imagine that a, a prosecutor steps up to make his opening argument, and he simply tells the judge and jury that they need to have faith that his convictions about the defendant are true. Chances are not only would the prosecutor fail in his attempt to get the court to believe him in blind faith, but he would also likely get thrown off the case. Okay, so to pivot now to departing from faith or understanding the consequences of it, the Bible calls faith assurance, substance, evidence, a strong foundation, and shield. What is a soldier charging into battle without a shield to defend himself against the flaming arrows of the enemy? He is dead. And as much as that infers giggles, think of it in the spiritual sense. I'll try not to too hard. I'll start crying. Um, in Proverbs, well, no, in several verses here, um, it discusses the consequences of lost faith. Uh, I know this is a, a tender subject for a lot of people. I know the once saved, always saved crowd is... Um, large and has reasons to believe what they believe. Um, I personally, with my convictions and what I read in the Bible, don't see this as a reality, and I feel these verses support it. Um, without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Then many will fall away and betray one another, hate one another, False prophets will arise and lead many astray. If that's not where we're at now, I don't know where. That's Matthew 29, or 24, 9 through 10. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith. Deconstruction, anyone? By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Mm. Yep, that's here. Uh, through, this insecurity, through the insecurity of liars whose consciences are seared. That's 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 2. Proverbs 3, 23. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. 
Isaiah 44:20, he feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or even say, is there not a lie in my right hand? I love how this verse makes it very obvious to those looking at this man eating ashes with a deluded heart that he's holding on to something that is absolutely nonsense. But his mind is so befuddled that he can't even grasp what he believes is garbage. Uh, in Hebrews 10, 38 through 39, But my righteous shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. You, ther uh, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with error, with the error of lawless people, and lose your own stability, but grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This is from 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18. It's clear what the harvest of departing from the faith is here in these verses. So now that we've defined faith, looked at blind faith, and describing faith and departing from faith, let us look at now at defending faith. How are we to claim faith, and not only claim it, but build and strengthen it? How do we cultivate assurance in those things hoped for? And how do we have the conviction in what we cannot see? How do we build our firm foundation, and how do we learn to use our shield, not just as a defensive weapon, but as an offensive one? Many of you paying attention will probably know what comes next biblical practice of apologetics. Uh, the main verse here that is pivotal to all apologetics used by almost everyone to describe it is 1 Peter 3, verses 15 through 16. In your hearts, honor Christ, as as Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Of course, highlighted there, always being prepared to make a defense, just as we're told always to have the shield of faith at the ready. And most importantly, do it with gentleness and respect so that those who hate you for it are put to shame. And those, uh, those of you who follow any apologists know that the ones who are the best at what they do take this verse very, very seriously. The English word apology comes from the Greek word apologia. Um, great podcast, by the way. Which basically means to give a defense or intellectual reasoning. Christian apologetics, then, is the science of giving a defense of the Christian faith. There are many skeptics who doubt the existence of God or attack belief in the God of the Bible. And there are many critics who attack the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible. There are many false teachers who promote false doctrines and deny key truths of the Christian faith. The mission of Christian apologetics is to combat these movements and instead promote the Christian God and Christian truth from gotquestions.org. A fantastic resource, by the way. Um, and the part he says there at the end about 
Christian truth, I would argue Christian truth is the truth, period, full stop, the end. Continuing on to defending faith, apologetics is a scary word to a lot of people. It means super smart people who use big fancy words. I don't understand what this means. I'm kind of terrified to get into it. Um, I have news for you. You have to, at least if you want to follow the instruction of the Bible and have a faith that will defend you against the flaming arrows of the evil one. Apologetics is a big nut to crack, but ultimately something all Christians are called to do. If you are ready, and you are ready, to begin diving into apologetics, the best place to start is by first understanding it is commanded of us, not only in 1 Peter 3, but also in Jude. On the third verse of Jude, Beloved, although I was very eager to write you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Um, so Jude instructing uh, those he's writing to that being able to defend the faith is paramount in their ability to maintain it. Uh, once we've come to this realization, it's time to stack up on resources. That shield arm isn't going to work itself. Um, I think unabashedly some of the best books, and admittedly I have not read these, uh, but I very much intend to, uh, are Lee Strobel's works, primarily The Case for Christ, uh, and then the follow-ups for that are The Case for Faith and The Case for Creator. I don't know of too many apologists who don't point to these as some of the best resources for being able to understand, being able to delve into the truth of understanding the validity of Scripture. Um, our world today is poisoned with the worldviews that are wrong, many worldviews that are wrong, and some of the most prevalent being the deadly ones of both atheism and materialism. Materialism is, for those of you who don't know, it sounds like, I want all this stuff and take me to the mall and bring home my bags of goodies. It's not what it's talking about. It's talking about perceiving the world as if the spiritual world does not exist alongside it. Uh, and that is a very easy way to fall then into atheism, belief of evolution and all that. Uh, the spiritual world is very real and it is very active. And I have a few recommendations for some podcasts to listen to if you want to hear more about it. Uh, if we can't defend the Genesis account, we're off to a very bad start. Fortunately, I know a guy. <laughs> This is, this is the sole promotional poster he has on his website, by the way. I'm not saying that at all. I think that's a perfectly adequate headshot. I think those jeans he bought in 1984 look great. I really do. <laughs> There's that. There's that. Um, the good news is that there's so very many options out there to learn more um, about defending your faith. They're there for you to grow in your faith by strengthening your knowledge as your foundation. Um, I want to preface this by I listened to a few of these, not all of them. If any of you know any of these are not a good resource, please let me know right this second. Uh, but some good podcasts are Apology Radio. It's one I just started listening to. They also have a YouTube channel. Uh, just Thinking, which I know several of us in here listen to. Uh, Mama Bear Apologetics is a great one geared specifically towards women. 
Um, certain websites like crossexamine.org, Apologetics 315, where I got quite a bit of information for this study on. Um, Thebibleproject.com, not necessarily apologetics, but a fantastic resource for um, just understanding the Bible in general. Um, YouTube has some great sites like Stand to Reason, uh, Lisa Childers' ministry, which also uh, is in podcast form, Answers of Genesis, of course. And I guarantee you there are plenty of people in this room that have much better recommendations than these. Ask them. You, you know who the podcast guys are because we won't shut up about it. So just... Guilty. Guilty. Um... I'm not, I'm not, obviously not getting into the study of apologetics here. I'm simply offering it as a solution. Um, I tried. It got to be a lot. And so I just kind of like, hey, look at apologetics. But that's kind of where we'll end here. I may need somebody to finish this for me. Um, there's a different version of the Emma story. Yep, I need somebody else to read this. You got it. You got it. Come nope. on. I legit need somebody else to read it. I can't do it. We believe in I, get it. I can't do it. I get it. I, I need a volunteer. <laughs> He's serious, guys. I'm, I'm 110% serious. I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. Okay, All please right. do. I'm going to go cry over there. All right, duly glucose. Um, just this, yep, this just, whole thing. Just all that. Okay. Emma was raised. Yeah. Emma was raised in a Christian home. She was too young to remember, but her parents told her stories of how she was baptized as an infant. She barely remembered asking Jesus to come into her heart when she was maybe four or five. She grew up going to church some Sundays, not all, but always on Christmas and Easter. She'd attend Sunday school sometimes, but there were a lot of Sundays when her family was too busy. As she got older, she started attending youth group, but admittedly more so to hang out with her friends didn't learn anything about the Bible. Um, that is until one day her youth pastor brought in a speaker who spoke about something that stuck with Emma. He talked about real questions that had always been at the back of her mind. Is the Bible really true? How do we know it? How could a loving God allow suffering? Did Jesus really exist? Is the creation story true? Suddenly the mundane life regurgitated corporate prayers and memorized stories that meant little to her to a back seat took a back seat to real thought and investigation about her faith. Eventually, graduation day came, and Emma went out into the world to make life for herself. Emma's journey to college had been a significant turning point in her life, as she had discovered apologetics and sought to shore up her belief in God through exploring arguments for and against the validity of the Bible and Christianity. Armed with a newfound confidence in her faith, Emma entered, col entered college with excitement and determination. In the bustling city, Emma encountered a diverse array of beliefs and opinions. Though her Christian background set her apart from many of her peers, she embraced the opportunity to engage in thought-provoking discussions about her faith. She was always willing to share her beliefs with openness and grace and she eagerly studied apologetics to bolster her understanding. As classmates and professors raised questions, Emma welcomed the challenge, realizing that her faith was not a mere collection of sentiments, but grounded in intellectual depth. She learned to articulate her beliefs with clarity and compassion, 
making a positive impression on those who sought to understand her perspective. Emma was delighted to find that her faith was resilient, strengthened by her exploration of evidence and logical reasoning. Throughout her college years, Emma continued to grow in her relationship with God. Her faith deepened as she encountered various trials and victories. Instead of falling away, Emma's faith anchored her in the face of challenges. She continued to attend church and found a supportive community on campus that encouraged her, her in her faith journey. After graduating, Emma returned to her small town with a heart full of gratitude and a passion for sharing her faith with others. She became an active member of her local church, volunteering in various ministries and forming meaningful connections with fellow believers. As time went on, Emma met a kind-hearted and God-fearing man who shared her love for the Lord. They got married and embarked on a life of service to God together. Emma and her husband raised their children in a home filled with love, prayer, and study of God's word. They instilled in their children the importance of seeking truth and understanding, encouraging them to explore their own faith with a firm foundation in Christ. As a devoted wife and mother, Emma continued to seek God's guidance in all aspects of her life. She remained active in her church, leading Bible studies, mentoring young believers, and reaching out to those in need. Her love for God, oh, sorry. Her love for God and genuine compassion for others left a lasting impact on her family, friends, and community. As the years passed, Emma's faith only grew stronger, and she became known for her unwavering trust in God. Her life became a beautiful testimony of the transformative power of faith and the joy that comes from a deep and personal relationship with Christ. Emma's story serves as a shining example of how a sincere pursuit of truth and a strong foundation in faith can lead to a life filled with purpose, joy, and love. Her commitment to God and her dedication to passing on her knowledge of the word continue to inspire and uplift those around her leaving a lasting legacy of faith for generations to come. Um, this is a little analogy I came up with. It might be garbage. It might, you might like it. I don't know. Uh, in the house of Christianity, faith is the mortar, the glue that holds each brick of solid evidence of the validity of Scripture laid out by God, both in his, in his word and in the natural world, uh, and within it lives the church. Uh, Hebrews 3, verse 6, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence or our assurance and our boasting and boasting in our hope of the things we know to come. Dear God, thank you for allowing me to have the opportunity um, to share on faith in your word. Um, I'm just so grateful for all the evidence you have laid out in the world that's just ours for the taking lord um, it is an immutable an immutable verifiable solid fact that you created this world and that your way is the only way lord help us grow to understand that and have assurance in that and be able to take that assurance move forward into the word into the world and spread your word to those within it. I ask all of this in your name. Amen.